1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Cholai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show. Kicks off this hour. Joining with me is my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome, sir.
0: Good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. You know
1: what? It, yeah. Depends on if they're playing back. Depends on if they're listening live. Time-appropriate salutations. How about that?
0: Indeed. We'll steal one of uh, Chris's books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I want to start with this, uh, Steve. Your OpenSUSE experiment came to an unexpected rapid conclusion. Tell me about that.
0: So um, I decided that I was going to try and undertake the the challenge because why not? You know, we talked about it. I have a couple of uh, laptops here in my home lab, both of them Lenovo and I grabbed the net ISO the week that we were challenged and I didn't get around to doing anything until last week. So I grabbed it and I stuck it in the machine and booted it up. And first of all, uh, I thought that the splash screen was very cute. I took a screenshot of that and sent it to Noah. It's basically like, it's an animated splash screen of penguins running around in some sort of like kind of Arctic scenery and I thought that was kind of cute and I also thought it was a little weird I'm like this is something I would expect from a community distribution, not something kind of loosely associated with a, a business, but I still thought it was interesting. So I, I go to boot the installation um, and it kernel panics like, well, what's going on here? So I you know, kind of tinker around on the bias a little bit, try it again, same problem. So I thought, oh, well, I must have had a bad flash. I give a, a grab a different USB drive, same problem. Okay, well maybe it's the net ISO. So I go grab the the four point four gigabyte download, try again, same problem. So I emailed one of the listeners uh, who had emailed in about the challenge, and they said, yeah, th- they'd seen this before, and that you know sometimes the installer ISO just breaks. So I grabbed my second Lenovo and I went through the same process all over again and had the same issue, at which point I said, well, I can't even get it off the ground. So I guess that's the end of my challenge. And that was the, that was
1: the end of the OpenSUSE challenge for Steve. Well, I have I have not quite as exciting in that as an, of an update, but I'll get to that in a second. Callers always go to the front of the line and we have a caller with us. So you're on the air. Welcome to Ask Noah.
2: Hi, Noah and Steve. My name is Ed, and I've got a question about virtualization servers. I'm looking to make a virtualization server uh, to host a whole bunch of VMs that I can access through different computers around the house. And my question for you is, what do you think is the best way to go on this? Should I just install Debian or Ubuntu, or should I install something more focused on running virtual machines like uh, Proxmox or something similar to that? And, uh, yeah, that's my question.
1: Sure. Steve, your
0: thoughts. So I always start by asking more questions than giving an answer because I think that um, usually there's more to unearth here. So my questions would be around, well, are you planning on on doing something additional with this computer? For example, uh, I might run an NFS server off of the same host because I'm kind of combining a bunch of things at once. And if you are planning on doing that or wanting to get in and tinker around with the underlying OS for you know, whatever reason, Proxmox or those kind of application style things is probably not the way to go. If you're looking to just set it and forget it, and you're not using this as a learning opportunity because there aren't very many places that are going to make use of a Proxmox skill set out there, there's a few, but not many, um, then you know, if your purpose is to learn something or do something and achieve a goal, then Proxmox is just fine. I'll jump
1: in there. Oh, and I definitely I'll, want to learn. Yeah. No, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, I definitely want to learn, but uh, I want to be able to use this computer for a couple of different things. I'm intending to run it headless, but I was anticipating running maybe four different VMs that I use just for web browsing and then maybe another VM for Volumio. Uh, Noah, that- any thoughts
1: on that? Yeah. Uh, so here's, here's what I would tell you. If you're looking for a basic virtual host, I always start with things like LibVirt. And the reason for that is you can get a LibVirt host off the ground in five minutes or less. You start with a with whatever operating system you want. So I would probably push you to go towards something like Linux or, or, or a, uh, a CentOS stream. But you tick the box that says virtualization server. When that thing restarts, uh, it's going to be a virtualization server. And with Cockpit, you have the ability to either administrate that over the command line with Versh, or you can use Cockpit and do it through a web UI. When you want to get a little bit more advanced and you want to have maybe some redundancy, those kinds of things, that's when I start looking at things like Proxmox. Where Proxmox kind of falls down for me is, so if you set servers up in libvirt, you can fairly trivially move those QCAL2 files between overt and libvirt. Um, and so there's there's an there's a an expansion path that allows you to kind of grow, and then Over kind of has all of the bells and whistles. And the nice thing about that track is, if you ever did get into a professional situation where you said, oh, I want to start digging around with some virtualization stuff, and they say, Well, this is mission critical; it just can't go down. It has to have it has to have all the all the things. Well, now you can go to Red Hat and say, Hey, I want to explore RHV. Well, guess what? all the work that you've done with Libvirt, all the work that you've done with Overt is gonna translate nicely into an RHV solution. So for those reasons, I, I, that's kind of my general path. And then where I break it down from there is, do you want central storage or not? If you are not gonna have some sort of centralized storage, um, then that kind of rules out high availability. Um, and then it also kind of rules out Overt. If, and so you're, you're basically your option there is, is Proxmox or, or Libvirt. Uh, if you're saying, hey, I am interested in secondary storage, I would like to have a dedicated free NAS box, true NAS box, um, something open media vault, something like that. Well, now you could really take advantage of something like Overt because it's going to be a little more system intensive, but you can add additional nodes and start to play with high availability and, and those kinds of things.
2: Okay, sounds great. So I'm, I'm looking into Libvert and Overt. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Steve and Noah. Have a great
1: day. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. Give us a call back. Let us know how it works. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Merlin, our show bot got an upgrade. So, uh, our, our show bot, you can still message the questions bot by sending a message to questions, colon, But we've now named Merlin. He has a name and his name is Merlin. He exists in our chat room. Merlin, uh, repeats a question from sleuth and says, is there any software to send and receive audio over the network that works on phones and Linux machines? My use cases. I want to listen to podcasts from antenna on my computer and monitor Jitsi and Mumble from my phone. Steve, any thoughts on that?
0: Whew, that's a complicated one. I guess I, I don't know too much about the phones because, uh, in terms of phone technology, I'm kind of a luddite. I don't like phones, and, oh, uh, and I both. won't get into that. <laughs> I won't get into that rant here, but uh, because of that, it, my phone is basically a glorified email stick for me, and that's that's about it. I'm 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 in the same boat. I, I would call my phone my my public access token. It's the
1: thing I use to interface with the rest of the world in the way that they want me to participate in things. I have no personal ownership or desire to uh, to care or invest in that platform. Um, here, here's what I would suggest, Sleuth. A really brain dead easy way to get something like that up and running would be to use something like Ulsa Mixer to get all of your various audio streams on the computer. See, you know, you open up a VLC window and get uh jitsi going and or i'm sorry you open up it like a web browser get jitsi going open up mumble get mumble going open up AntennaPod and get or vlc whatever it is you're going to use to play and get audio going there and you can stream all of those over something like an icecast server and then it open then the world is your oyster your imagination becomes the limit as to how you want to receive that icecast stream so you could take a little embeddable html widget and have that play like we do on asnoahshow.com and listen to your stream. That way you could open that stream inside of a native media player inside of your phone. Um, and then you can just kind of keep an eye or an ear rather on audio coming out of your phone. Um, so that might be a way to to look at that. Tubit uh, asks Merlin, are you still using Google Glass? I am. I'm not. I don't wear it day to day anymore because it's it's become increasingly difficult to get the app loaded onto a phone. But To date, there is no other device that can do what Google Glass did. And so I have my original pair that Google graciously continued to replace for me until they stopped making them. And then I have a backup pair that was kindly donated to me by a listener. So still have them. I have very nice cases for them, and I break them out every once in a while when I need them for a specific use case. So... Uh, love Google Glass. Again, phone lines to join us, 855 450 It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email comes in from Matthew. Matthew writes in, says, hi, Noah and Steve. I have a server at home running Pop!OS LTS 24-7, doing stuff like Home Assistant, NextCloud, Plex, and several others on Docker. I've made a subdomain on my personal website to link to my house IP address, and then I simply route the ports on my router to go directly to my server. I have two questions. First, how can I implement HTTPS? My website panel lets me download a certificate plus a key, but I don't understand how to do it. Do I have to install something like hub-docker.com slash hitch? My other question is, if I close all the ports except the ones used to connect to the servers, 80 for Nextcloud, 32400 for Plex, etc.), is my network secure? Thanks guys, I very much enjoy the show. Matthew. Steve, what are your thoughts?
0: So I handle questions like this or similar to this on a daily basis. So I've, I've quite a few, but I'll try and condense them. So the first thing is making something TLS enabled, isn't as simple as just adding a certificate because uh, oftentimes it involves, you know, usually a a trivial amount of configuration on the application itself. The reason for that is in this situation where you have a personal web server out on the internet and it's just redirecting. Uh, just putting a, an SSL certificate on the host, on this web server, only, only protects you from the point that you're calling, so your web browser to the personal website. The personal website will then forward it insecurely to anything behind it. So just putting a, an SSL certificate on the web host itself is only going to secure the connection between you and the web server, not the web server and whatever else it kind of connects into. So uh, you might do something like having a, a, a proxy on at your home where the web server redirects to the proxy and that the proxy requires HTTPS. And then, it does what's called offloading where, or termination, pardon me, it does termination. So what that means is if I go into my browser and I get redirected to a, a proxy that I've set up on my network, that is connected via HTTPS. And anything that goes over the internet will then be connected, like be secured with that certificate. But then the HA proxy or Nginx or whatever you use will connect back to a service like Plex or Nextcloud insecurely. And that's okay because your threat vector thing you're trying to protect against is random people on the internet, not people on your home network doing something bad to that service as a general rule. So there's a lot of ways that you could kind of um, tackle that. But if you're trying to make something secure, like um, for example, Nextcloud, you're going to want to go in and enable the the flags inside of nextcloud that allows it to know that it's ssl aware that it should be serving a certificate and when you're running docker so if you've got a docker container that's got nextcloud in it and you've turned on the flags the next step is to make sure that you're passing in the ssl certificate in the way that the documentation specifies sometimes that's here's a volume mount sometimes that's injecting the certificate directly into the image Uh, We don't recommend that. If you're running something like Kubernetes or OpenShift, this could be handled by something called a secret or a config map. There's all kinds of ways to get a certificate into the running container. So that kind of hopefully gives you an idea of what you're trying to tackle when you are working with certificates, like trying to make a service quote unquote secure. You asked about whether or not closing down your ports will help make your network secure. And the answer to that is there's a lot more to security than just simply closing ports. So for example, if you've got Nextcloud listening on port 80 and you close all the other ports down, it doesn't mean that your network is insecure, but it also means that any traffic that's going to or from the Nextcloud server is being sent in the open, right? Because port 80 is not encrypted, which means anybody who happens to be in your sphere of influence can actually do things like sniff your username and password or what things you're accessing and that sort of stuff. So um, just to kind of close this loop, what makes your network secure is not only closing down unused ports, but also making sure that you have the software properly configured and up to date. And we'll talk later, I think, today about the log 4 shell attack, which is Perfect example. <laughs> a perfect example of you could have all of the ports closed and still have a massive security hole. So, hopefully, that kind of answers the question. Noah, do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah. I, so, I would add to that I think closing ports is a really good first step, right? If all the doors are shut, it is harder to get into the house. So, there, there, there's, I think there's some real value into, hey, do I start maybe with having all the ports shut, and when I need to access my home network remotely, I'm VPNing in, and that way, even if I have something that isn't configured correctly or securely, or in the case of I guess the, the exact example eludes me, but there was a, there was a there was a very popular oh Asterix Asterix is up. We ran we ran into this constantly like five six years ago. Uh, Asterix was a is a very popular open source uh, PBX software and there were hardening steps that you were supposed to take if you deployed an Asterix server. And constantly we would come across businesses that would say, our phones aren't working or, or, or somebody got into our network and we would go look and you'd put their public IP address into our browser and boom, there was the Asterix administration panel which would, would, would show up and it was, it was kind of ridiculous. And they, they were very clear on their site, you know, here are the steps that you need to take to harden if you're gonna open this up to the public internet. And a lot of people don't do that. Um, so I, th- I think shutting the door is not a bad first step. The other thing I would say is when you're talking about SSL or if you're going to SSL, Steve, it sounds like he's using his uh, domain registrar and getting a certificate from them and likely he's paying them for that. Would it not make more sense to just to generate a Let's Encrypt certificate?
0: Yeah, it would because... The when you're dealing with the web hosts like this, it's likely that they're only going to be generating the host the certificate for the uh, host name of the thing that they're serving. So if it's, you know, myblog.sumregistrar.com, that's how they're going to generate the, the certificate. Because what happens when you generate when you make a certificate signing request, you actually have to put in information like what is the host name. Where does this host like, where does it reside? Where can I reach you? What kind of administrative address can I email you at all of those sorts of things? So if if they're just giving you a certificate and you haven't answered those questions, then I guarantee it. They're they're making assumptions on your part and you won't be able to apply that certificate to another host. Really in, in you know, to be honest with you, it's one of those things
1: where before Edward Snowden came out with with his leaks, um, People didn't think a lot about this, and the whole idea with Let's Encrypt from the beginning was to enable it to be extraordinarily simple and straightforward, and free, for anybody to generate as many certificates as as they need on as many servers as they want. So. My suggestion to you is, is go that route and take advantage of that. It's available for all of the major web browsers. They all trust it, uh, all trust Let's, Encry- Let's Encrypt. So You're not going to get any weird error messages and stuff like that. And if you look at what most projects are going to, if they have some sort of an ISO in our automatic deployment, a lot of times they're coming uh, straight with, with Let's Encrypt. So um, those that, that would be our advice. Uh, it'll also, you'll probably find it much more straightforward to deploy a certificate with Let's Encrypt. If you, you know, if you're looking at Nextcloud, for example, Plex would be another example. A lot of these are going to have tutorials specifically written for Let's Encrypt, so be fairly straightforward um, to get all of that set up. Our second email comes in from Jose. Jose writes in and says, "Hey, Ask Noah Show. I access my emails. Many of you do using a web client or a mobile app to interact with the service like Proton Mail or Gmail. I typically delete a lot of my incoming mail as I read them to keep my inbox clean. But more important email." has been coming in. I'm noticing that archiving old emails is becoming more and more useful, whether it is to build a timeline of certain things that took place or simply referring back to reestablish a context of a topic. Email is probably not going away anytime soon, and I fully expect to start hitting storage limits on those free accounts for these services. This means I'm going to have to start paying a subscription fee to increase my storage limits. Gmail storage limits, for example, are tied to my Google Drive and Google Photos. That's pretty easy to fill up, on the free tier with only 15 gigabytes available. How would you go about solving this problem? I don't need my entire archive of emails to exist in these three services, and I could easily work from my local archive. But I would want to retain the ability to search through it using a UI that's accessible to non-technical users, even if I need to go back to some other endpoint, such as a self-hosted web application or an application in a workstation to do so. How would you solve this? So Steve, Mr. Zero Inbox, what would you do?
0: So in this case, um, Gmail in specific, and lots of hosts actually provide you a way to download your mailbox files. Um, so the way that I help handle this is I sort my email into different folders. I know that wasn't exactly part of the question, but it does help to kind of organize you and and help you help your searching for your inbox, especially if you're going to pull it down locally. Um, giving it a subfolder is always going to be helpful for you in the long run as for doing this locally, uh, the most of what people do that I know is they get that file from their hosting provider, uh, and then use it in Thunderbird and just open up because Thunderbird can import these files and just have it like that and make sure that your Thunderbird configuration directory and files are backed up so that you continue to have a copy of that archive. What would you do?
1: So once a year, I, I I tell clients all the time, email is not persistent storage. That is not the place for you to store your files. It's not the place for you to organize your life. It's not the place for you to schedule things. It's a communication tool, and you should use it as such. And if you need persistent storage, let me tell you about ZFS. Um, and so I apply that myself. every Once a year, I don't maintain a zero inbox. I would love to. I, I don't know. Not organized enough, I guess. But once a year, I go through and I dump my entire email uh, inbox all of my emails out of my provider and I store it locally as a file now like you suggested you can run a local copy of Thunderbird and drag all of those emails in and so every every, every once and every once a year my, that particular instance of Thunderbird just gets updated with all of my emails so if I ever have to go back and look something up it's very easy to do so and because I use Thunderbird on my daily driver and I use Thunderbird on my archiving machine, it essentially is the same thing. The only difference is those emails are stored on a free NAS box that is being backed up and all of the things. And I have terabytes worth of space there so I could care less how many emails show up there. And the nice thing is because I do it by year, I usually have a year of, uh, you know, the, a folder for the year. And then inside of that, uh, the emails that I have categorized or, or you know, very... These are very important and I need to be able to access these or these have important contact information or these have sensitive security information, whatever it is. I try to organize that. Um, and and that that's worked for me for years. And I've, I've been doing that since before Thunderbird was a thing. I've been doing that back when uh back when it was uh, Eudora mail. Our third email comes in from Andrew. Andrew writes in and says, hi, Noah. I run a phone server for a small family business. They use a cloud-hosted version of 3CX on a Vulture instance. They mostly use soft phones for daily calls, except for a single desk phone that's used for the front desk receptionist. Recently, they bought a second desktop phone for someone else in the office. Now, when both phones boot up, it's a game of chance which one is going to work, which one's going to ring for inbound calls and extension-to-extension calling, and which one won't. I think this has something to do with NAT, Tried turning off RTSP-ALG and their TP-Link router, that doesn't seem to change anything. Both phones can make outbound calls just fine, it's inbound calls that are broken and only go to one phone or the other. Details, both phones are Yaleink brands. model is supported by 3CX, router is a consumer TP-Link C2600. Thanks for your help in advance, love the show. Steve, any thoughts?
0: If I was to take a guess, and and I'm, I'm not really deep in this area, but I do have stuff on Flowroute and 3CX, I would think that this is a misconfiguration in one of the providers for you. Um, That's what it sounds like. It almost sounds like um, you've got two things with almost an identical either extension or some sort of UID. And that's why it seems random which one uh, gets the inbound calls, because it would make sense that if they're sharing either the same extension or whatever, they can both dial out, but uh, your provider has to know where to direct the traffic to. That's just a guess, though.
1: So I think uh, I think we're I think we're dealing with some sort of firewall thing. If if I were a betting man, and um, there's a couple of ways I can think to address this particular problem. So the first thing that you can do is 3CX actually supports. Uh, well, there's there okay yeah. So 3CX supports a device that a software that you can flash onto a Raspberry Pi. And I can't off the top of my head think, remember what the name of the software is called. But if you look into uh, a externally hosted 3CX instance and internal extensions, um, they will talk about this bridge device. And essentially you flash the operating system onto a Raspberry Pi and you tell the phones, instead of connecting to the SIP server, you tell them to connect to this device. This device then in turn, is connected to your your SIP, your SIP provider. So likely what's happening is you forwarded something like port 5060 to one of the extensions. And so both of them are now trying to talk out on one port. So you can use the 3CX bridge thingy-majigger that I can't recall the proper name for. That's one way to get around the problem. Other thing you can do is a one-to-one direct port mapping. So inside of 3CX, you can specify, hey, when Extension, and I'm just going to make them up, 751 connects, you're going to go over port 5060. You over there, your extension number 751, when you connect, you go over uh, 5065, and so on and so forth. Now, you might ask yourself, well, self, if that's the case, why do all the soft phones work? And the reason for that is, and this is one of the reasons I like 3CX over uh, some of the open source solutions is th- the, the app on 3CX actually will tunnel back to your 3CX server, which is why even on things like AT&T's uh, mobile internet service that typically blocks SIP traffic or people have reported uh, SIP traffic being blocked, uh, you can still use 3CX because it has no idea what the traffic is. It's just an encrypted jacketed thing that is is, is being sent off. And um, so the, the mobile app Almost always work regardless of what the router or firewall configuration situation is. Um, so, so that that's where I would start. If you can't get any progress there, or you have trouble uh, doing that, then the next thing I would do is I, I would I might look at upgrading your uh, your TP-Link router. Um, if you can get something with pfSense on it, we have hundreds of deployments of people with 3CX externally hosted uh, 3CX servers and pfSense running on the inside of their network, and it takes no configuration you literally just plug it in and it will work um three six, we'll figure that out now the the uh, you talk about the the uh the alg helper you definitely want that regardless if if you if, if it's doing anything for you or not you definitely want to disable all of those things and i think the the package on on uh, pf sense is uh, ciprox d and the idea there was to allow multiple connections out to uh, a a single sip server but if you're if you're doing that in 2021 um you'll definitely want to use the the direct port mapping. Our pick of the week this week is Casa OS. You can learn more at casaos.io. So Steve a few weeks ago we had somebody write in and say hey, what would you suggest the best way for me to get started with doing home servers? I'm looking at doing this. Well, somebody has made an operating system specifically for people that want to build a cloud server in their home. And so Casa OS is the community-based open source software focused on delivering simple cloud experiences around the Docker ecosystem. So as mobile tech has become more advanced, uh, essentially... People are needing services, and if you're inside of your home, a lot of those services are either missing or fragmented. So Casa OS is the open source solution to this. It's based on the Docker ecosystem, and is they are what they're doing is building a simple, easy to use cloud based server. So you install Casa OS, you get a little dashboard. You can go into the dashboard, and you can start clicking to add uh, modules to this. So you can add things like Home Assistant, Jellyfin, eb, uh, MB Transmission. Qubit Torrent, uh, uh SAS, SAS and NZBD uh, sonar, radar, all of these applications are going to be available with just a one click deployment. You can set up things like your Unify controller, DuckDNS, uh, Duplicity, Nginx, Nextcloud. They even have a file browser. They have sync things. So a lot of the things that you would go out to a cloud provider and say, well, I need uh, I need Netflix. No, you can you can get Plex or, or, again, Jellyfin or Enby. Uh, well, I maybe I need a, a file syncing solution. Well, that's available, too. And so you just install these ads one click and it allows a, a nice, simple, elegant, easy to use way uh, to get started. So is it for the elite of the elite? Does it does it allow you to hack to Kingdom Come? No, it's kind of meant to get people started in this. But if you've ever thought that hosting your own server is a bit overwhelming and you weren't quite sure where to start, uh, CASA OS might be something you'll check out. So we'll have links for you in the show notes. You can learn more at casaos.io as well as there's a write-up that we have on the CASA OS home cloud system. So I'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week this week is the M5 Stick. You can learn more at m5stack.com. And so the M5 Stick is an ESP32 Pico D4. It's essentially like a little Arduino development kit um, that has a number of different technology things baked onto it. So it has an infrared sensor, it has a microphone, it has an, an LED, an IMU, it has some buttons, it has a buzzer, it has a tiny little 1.14-inch screen that has a resolution of 135 by 240, and it contains a 120 milliamp battery. So you might say, no, what can you do with this little M5 stick? Oh, by the way, this is the important part. The price? Yes, $14. $14 for this thing. So you might ask, what can I do with this tiny little development fourteen dollar stick? Well, you can do a lot, actually. As it turns out, by default, when you pull it out of the box, charges with USB-C, which I loved. Charge it up, and you turn it on, and you can cycle through. So if you go to if you go to the microphone, it shows you a little waveform of what is the microphone is picking up. If you go to the infrared, you can receive infrared commands, and it'll display on the little LCD. Uh, what infrared things it's it's displaying. If you go over to the buzzer, you push the button, it beeps the buzzer, uh, and and so it can be battery powered, and you can you can program this thing to do essentially whatever you want. So, a friend of mine uh, wanted tally lights for his camera system. So he's got three cameras, and he wants the light to turn on when that source is active. But tally systems are expensive, and if you don't have professional video cameras that support a tally system, it's a difficult thing to do. Well if you're already using some sort of switching system like OBS then you can program the M5 stick to listen for when that scene is active in OBS and just turn the LCD red which is equivalent to a red tally light and so he bought three of them and he put them up on each of the cameras and connect the built-in wi-fi right thing has built-in wi-fi so plug in connected to Wi-Fi and now he can talk to the device and it listens and watches for his scene change and turns the screen red when that camera is active. It's just one example, one creative example of how you can use this fantastic little thing. So as you're going to do Christmas shopping, we're going to have our Christmas episode next week. We're going to talk a little bit and give you some ideas of what you could do uh, for Christmas gifts. But this is definitely on the list. 14 bucks. Get this for the nerd in your family. in the news this week centos 8 is coming to an end so on december 31st red hat centos linux 8 will reach its end of life and so what this means is that uh that's it for centos and you'll have to choose to switch to something like centos stream you'll have to get a red hat subscription or you have to go through one of the other options that are available to you now red hat because they're not a company that just throws people to the wind is going to extend the zero day support until january 31st 2022 i think this is a classy move by red hat it you know they're they're going to eol a thing and that's disappointing particularly because it that wasn't the understanding when they released centos 8 but the eol is going to sunset right over the holidays and they say no we're not doing that to people we're not going to make every it admin run around with their like a chicken with their head cut off we'll give them to the end of january so you got till the end of january to get into the series security stuff but you need to make a decision and a path forward by december 31st so Companies, uh, large companies uh, that I weren't, I wasn't aware of, have been using CentOS Linux, and that includes things like Disney, GoDaddy, Rackspace, Toyota, Verizon, um, and they build a lot of products around uh, CentOS. And so things like GE, Riverbed, F5, Juniper, and Fortinet all have products based in CentOS. And so they're all scrambling to make a different decision. So what are your choices? Now, we've covered this in previous episodes, so you can go back and listen to some of those if you'd like to explore any of these choices more in depth. But your first choice, you could get a proper Red Hat subscription. And this is what I mean when I say that I think there, there might have been a better way to market this, but if anything, Red Hat is putting more tools in people's pockets. They're not really taking it away. So you can go sign up for a free Red Hat subscription. You can put up to 8 devices on that Red Hat subscription and guess what? They don't penalize you if you want to use that for commercial purposes. So you have a you have a bakery and you want to run a cento, or you want to run a, an actual Red Hat server and you go to your mom or your dad or your your cousin or whoever it is that owns the bake shop and say, "Hey, I think this is the the server software you should be using, they say, well, I don't have hundreds of dollars a year. No problem, we'll just sign you up for one of these. You can run up to eight of them. Um, And the only requirement is that the license has to be in the name of the person that is using it. So, you know, for us, we're an IT provider, we wouldn't put the license in our name, in AltaSpeed's name, it would be in the name of the client. But then they can have up to eight licenses. So the downside to that is, right, Red Hat holds all the keys, they hold the carpet. So at any time in theory, they could pull the carpet out from under you. But we have no reason to suspect that that would happen. So you can get a Red Hat proper subscription and just go from CentOS 8 to Red Hat 8 and you'll get the exact same stability that you would have had if they'd continued the CentOS project. It's going to cost you the same amount of money that it would have cost you if you were on the CentOS project. And uh, as Steve can attest, um, uh, we've done a number of these swaps now to go from uh, CentOS 8 off of CentOS 8 and they're very smooth. The first one I did It was for a fairly important client. And I called Steve and said, hey, have you uh, run into any problems? Nope. Pretty straightforward procedure. And sure enough, no problems at all. So if you're not comfortable with the Red Hat proper uh, subscription, your other choice is you could go to CentOS Stream. Now, you're going to ride one point release ahead of where Red Hat is tracking. So I think you should be aware of that. But so far, we have a number of clients that are using CentOS Stream. Not really been any issues. Turns out, one point release ahead of time, they still have all their ducks in a row when they ship that code. Um, so that's an option for you. And then you have the 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 clones, the essentially the new versions of CentOS, the the things that accomplish the same thing that CentOS used to. And that would be things like AlmaLinux, Cloud Linux, and Rocky Linux. Now I've played with all of them. My favorite one is AlmaLinux, and you know, really, if you think about it, the code is the same. They're just recompiling Red Hat code, so you're not the where the brand differentiator is is in the CI and the support that goes around it. And one of the things that Alma Linux has, does that just kind of blew my hair back. They have open office hours. So if you have a question about how things are, are, are working or why things work the way they do or you have an important deployment, you can ask them. You can get FaceTime with them and you can have a conversation and what that will do. For the community long term, the ability to go and get plugged into a place where you can ask questions and kind of sort things out and then be in a perfect binary, binarily compatible place to switch to a proper Red Hat subscription if and when the client or if and when the business decides to do that, I think is a really nice on ramp and a really great community service. So you can learn more about all those. We've had uh, Gregory Kutzner from Rocky Linux. We've had the Alma Linux folks on. Uh, We've had Red Hat folks on to talk about all of these various projects so you can go back and listen to our previous catalog. You can learn more. Toyota is making your key fob a service. So a Toyota spokesperson confirmed that if you have a 2018 or later Toyota that's equipped with Toyota's remote connect functions, the vehicle must be enrolled with a valid subscription in order for the key fob start the car remotely now i want to be clear when i say start the card remotely many cars have gone to a system where there's an lte chip in the car the car connects up to an lte tower and then you can open up a smartphone app or log on to a website or whatever and you say hey i want to start my car it sends it to a server server sends it to the car which can talk to the server because it has a persistent data connection through that lte card now if toyota has to pay an LTE service, a cell phone provider to get the data to the car so that they can offer that service. I can understand why they need a monthly fee. This is not that. This is the proximity based RF remote system. This is you push the button on your remote and a little radio wave goes from that remote out to your car 15 feet away and would start the car. That's what they're going to charge a subscription service for. and so. There should be no connection to Toyota server required. It's not needed, and yet they're going to charge you to do this. Toyota's the first company to charge for the full use of your physical key fob, and you can either do that at $8 a month or $80 a year. That's their current prices. Now, you might ask yourself, why Why are we talking about a car on Ask Noah? And the, the reason for that is this obsession with everything as a service. When we talk about owning your own infrastructure, we talk about taking control of your data. This is the antithesis of that to where you buy a car and you can't use the functionalities of the car unless you're signed up for a service from the automotive manufacturer. Now that's bad enough, like I say, when it when it technologically depends on a recurring monthly fee to have the technology available to offer the feature, but it's entirely unacceptable to me and quite frankly, Boggles the mind that we've now gotten to the point where we're going to force this, even when it's not technologically required. It's literally just they need to get their cut every month. So this is how this is how we're going to operate. And if we don't push back on this, if we don't vote with the wallet, if we don't tell people, hey, this is an unacceptable line for you to cross. This is going to become more and more prolific to where at some point you just won't own anything. Everything you do, you're going to go out and you're going to it'll be tied to a subscription service if you want to use the thing that you buy. So I'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can read more about it at podcast.asknoahshow.com PopOS 2110 has been released. This is from System76 and they've done some polish. So the application library now opens in a small searchable window over your current workspace. They've improved the multi-monitor experience meaning that the application library will launch only on the display in which your mouse has focus, making it easier for you to concentrate and not become distracted. They have a simple app organization so you're able to drag and drop applications into custom folders. The new folders are always visible and acts a lot like tabs to move between your personally organized applications they also have announced this is particularly exciting a tech preview of pop os 2110 that's now available for the raspberry pi so it's a tech preview because they're not they're not putting all of the quality assurance stuff that comes in to their desktop product because they don't sell raspberry pi it's not their focus right but they had enough interest in people that said, man, I would like to run Pop!OS on a Raspberry Pi, and indeed they have the developing infrastructure to be able to do that, so they've offered this as an available option. Your system will now recognize Pop!OS when it's installed from the recovery partition, and it'll offer the option to refresh the OS prior to unlocking the encrypted drive, and that makes it easier to see when a refresh operating system option is available. Now, if you've not used their refresh OS option, this is the kind of stuff that makes me think System76 is five steps ahead of everyone else. This is the stuff you're gonna get from System76, you're not gonna get from Dell, Lenovo, all of the other places that say they ship with Linux, what they really mean is, they installed an operating system, it worked, and so then they sent it out or they did a little bit of tweaking. The Refresh OS feature allows you to reinstall the operating system without deleting any of the files in your home directory. And so this allows you to get a a clean slate without losing any of your data. They've also modified the Wi-Fi sorting in Wi-Fi connections, so it'll now be sorted uh, by your current connection, then previous connections, and then of signal strength. So a huge thanks to System76 for their work on Pop! OS. Go check it out, Pop! OS 2110. CVE-2021-44228 that has the internet on fire this week. So this security vulnerability is based or it comes to us in the form of Log4j which is an open source java based logging library that's widely used on a number of different products and services and java components. And so essentially the idea of it is when you visit a website, your IP address, your browser and 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 the pages that you visit are registered Uh, by the logger. Well, the internet is in a panic this week because attackers have been conducting internet-wide scans, looking for a new discovered vulnerability in the Log4J uh, open source Java-based logging library. And so on the flip side, security defenders who have have been running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to get systems up to date, putting mitigations in place. Developers are working to audit their applications and code library looking for any dependencies that might include vulnerable versions of the Log4j library. So the basic uh, 30 second elevator pitch on how this works is it allows attacker an attacker to run code of their choice uh, on an affected server. And so if the adversary somehow gets into the local network, even the internal systems that are on the internet could potentially be exploited. And so at the moment, it looks like the attack uh, attacks are being limited to things like crypto, miner, crypto miners, malware, deploying botnets for, for distributed denial of service attacks, which that's bad, don't get me wrong, um, but could be a lot worse. So the way that this works under the hood is it uses the java naming and directory interface and essentially that makes a call out to an ldap server the ldap server then refers to an http server and that's what actually executes the code and so the thing that is this is you know the worst case scenario is that you can remotely execute code and that's i mean it doesn't get much worse than that when it comes to a a, a security vulnerability so there is a there's a lot of uh, research and there is a lot of examples on the internet of, of how this is being used. One of my favorite is a a, a gentleman that has a video that, that we'll have linked in the show notes, and he goes through how to perform remote executions over Minecraft. So because Minecraft uses Java, he's able to go into the chat functionality and send messages that then in turn execute code on the victim's machine. And so he's able to get uh, full console access to the machines and thereby browsing the file directories, installing whatever thing he wants to install, privilege, privilege escalation, you name it. Um, so again, they're using it to deliver coin miners and and, and drop cryptoware, but it, it's not going to be long before we start seeing these attacks uh, exploited for much more serious things. So the versions that are affected are 2.14.1 and earlier. Of course, they've issued a fix. This is in 2.15.0 the problem is this thing is in everything it's in printers it's in security camera systems it's i mean it's in it's in it's in a ton of stuff and so there is a list on github that is actually trying to track all of the available attack surfaces um and if you go through that twitter and apple and uh cloudflare and amazon and you name it tesla all of these things have Uh, potentially have this vulnerability available. And so it's a huge scramble. So Steve, I I imagine that this has probably shaken some dust in your corner of the world as well. Certainly you're dealing with this in some way.
0: Yeah, of course we are. Um, So Red Hat has of course already released mitigations like everybody else. The the challenge here is that the uh, example code kind of did not follow the responsible disclosure. So Example code hit the internet and uh, things like that while the zero day was still active. So while we were still scrambling to try and uh, put in appropriate mitigations, the uh, instructions, if you will, of how to use this to exploit people went live on the internet. So there is, you know, that's that's part of what set things on fire for sure. And we, uh, you know, everybody's been asking about it, and and I actually heard mostly about it from one of the clients. Like I, I get the CVE updates in my email and I kind of glance at them or whatever, but because of my narrow focus in Red Hat, a lot of times they don't really um, apply to my day to day. So I just was like, oh, it's a Java thing. And I just went on my business. And then someone asked me about it that day and I was like, oh, maybe I should read a little more about this. Um, so it has been quite interesting to see. There are, there are lots of mitigations that you can take on your own end as well um such as making sure that your browser isn't running javascript or things of that nature but it is a pretty it is a pretty bad one i as i look through examples on the internet
1: it it did seem to me that most of the people that were exemplifying them had to take some some pretty drastic steps in order to actually execute remote code right so for example in windows you have to disable uh windows defender you have to disable security center um you can't have any antivirus or anything like that all gets tripped and then in the case of the minecraft example he had to run like a super old version of minecraft uh to get the vulnerability to perform the thing he wants now it's still bad um and it's still something we absolutely need to address and it's still disappointing that responsible disclosure wasn't followed but it 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 seems to me like the actual practical attack vector of this is maybe not so large i mean again i guess the other side of that is so many there's so many people that don't have stuff up to date and that's really your best defense against this stuff right keeping things up to date um and so when you don't Uh, Then you get popped and the 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 thing that's particularly insidious is because it's out there in the wild and because everyone knows it now They're literally scanning blocks and I think I one of the articles that I was doing show prep for was talking about cloudflare And they made a decision to they have a service that you can pay for um, Where they do threat mitigation and they said this is so serious and so widespread that we're going to get give you the threat mitigation, no matter what tier you're on, even if you're on the free tier. And so, they, as they see people scanning for this stuff, they're just whole hog blocking it. Um, so it, it's kind of a terrifying place to be. And I will say, if you're out there and you're using Simple Help, uh, Simple Help is not affected. Is not affected by this particular vulnerability. It Runs a pretty lean stack, so you're you're good there. But if you have Java running in production, you absolutely need to make sure. Um, that you're running 2. Dot f- that, you, yeah, well, if you're running log4j specifically, you need to make sure that you're running 2.15 uh, or later, you have uh, log4j disabled.
0: So there are other mitigations that you can use. So one of the temporary, not temporary, but the immediate fixes that that we executed here in my corner of Red Hat is there's a, an environment variable called es underscore java underscore ops. So it, it's for options. And it's basically you tell the format uh, message not to look, not to do lookups. So it's it's literally a simple toggle. Even if you can't upgrade your Java, because there are tons of people that have all kinds of churn anytime that a version gets bumped of anything. And so um, that mitigation works on OpenShift and related products uh, that I work with. So that's just kind of a you know, if you're in one of those spots where you can't update immediately because of, you know, reasons, you know, there's lots of red tape or whatever, you could investigate to see if one of these options for turning off the, the message lookup in log4j will help mitigate the issue for you.
1: You know, I, I can kind of understand if there's incompatibilities with upgrading, but is there, are, are there, I suppose this is a silly question. Of course, there are organizations that would say, no, we, we just have a policy that this is the thing we're on. And so doesn't matter how bad the security vulnerability is, you're not upgrading that thing.
0: Well, it, it's more that it has to turn through process, right? So even even getting an emergency fix. So what the way that some of the really large clients work is they will um, latch onto a version and that's the version they certify and that's the version mm. they codify. And if there's a version bump, uh, that's part of the reason why Red Hat will... Backport security fixes as opposed to just saying, you know, update your version to whatever the newer thing is, is because a adding an E on the end of the version doesn't necessarily trigger that same process of having to go through mm. the recertification process. But you bump that a point like, you know, from 14.1.2 to 14.1.3 and everybody goes, whoa, you know, like something changed. We've, yeah. So. There's always um, for the especially for the really good people. There's always a, um, a an emergency process, but it's not the same thing as like, hey, I'm going in and setting this Java flag because an emergency trigger of a um, of software, like that has to go. That has to be expedited through Dev and, and you know QA and test and all of their kind of processes, even if they shortcut that. Whereas if it's just a, a an environmental flag it doesn't cause that, that change control effect.
1: So Steve, I'm running a server. How do I know if I have log4j running? And how do I know
0: if I need to do anything at all? Uh, I would say, assume you have log4j running because it's kind of the default logging for all of Java. Um, and so I was watching this and everybody's like, oh, it's the open source thing. And I, and I was like, that's... <laughs> Why, why? It's literally just a logging function inside of a piece of software. You don't have to throw the word open source in there for any, like there's no reason to do that. But yeah, I would say assume that you are running log4j if you have a Java process, um, because you, you pretty much have to make sure that it's turned off because anybody who's logging things in Java, well, not anybody, but the vast majority of people who are doing any kind of logging, like your Minecraft example, Uh, we'll be using Log4j because that's kind of the built-in go-to. I have to tell you, this is one of those things that really, really, really makes me hate
1: uh, Internet of Things stuff, right? Like one of the things that I know, as soon as I read the brief on this, I thought, man, this this is going to bite me for the next 10 years, is there's all sorts of you know routers and switches and things out there that are going to have this on there and some of them will be good because they're larger brands and they'll release firmware updates a lot of the other ones it's just hey they wrote this thing and they threw it out there and just assumed that it'll be fine and because pe- nobody nobody ah, well not nobody most people won't ask hey is am i going to get how long am i going to get updates for this thing then you're then you just get to a point where it's not updated anymore and now you have something this kind of with this kind of severity and you don't really have an option you don't really have a fix
0: you know how many of those remote connection software are running on java like the old bmc mm. or the ipmi or whatever running some ancient crust and version of java and those are not getting updated totally. i guarantee it <laughs> well one of the things that we hit at, in the broadcasting industry is
1: our transmitter the controller for it runs on it on on a version of java and and so all of the all of all of the transmitters we had to pull off of the network um, until we could figure out what they're going to do. And the company that makes the transmitters is in the process of getting off of Java and going to an HTML5 tool thing, but it's not quite ready yet. So, yeah, it's huge problems in the industry, but we'll continue to keep an eye on it. We'll continue to keep our finger uh, on the pulse of it and we'll continue to keep it up, keep you updated uh, as as it progresses. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. We appreciate you joining us. You can join us live for the podcast. We record it every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us in our interactive chat room at geeklab.ninja. You can join the Jitsi room. You can speak with your voice. You can give us a call on the phone. And we love to have your participation. Hey, if you want to reference all of the articles and documents that we use to put the show together you can get access to those by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com while you're there you can check out the back catalog catch all the episodes that you missed we'll be back next tuesday at 6 p.m central at asknoahshow.com have a good week